Welcome to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald. Looking for more information on the podcast? Visit litreading.com. Now please bear with us as we pay the bills. Our story begins shortly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald. Human beings are complex creatures, and we grow more so with time. Every relationship we have adds or subtracts from who we are. No relationship is more life-changing than a marriage. And for a woman thrice married in pre-suffrage America, the stigma of multiple divorces seems insurmountable until her third husband comes to a startling revelation in the other two by Edith Wharton chapter one Waythorn on the drawing-room hearth waited for his wife to come down to dinner it was their first night under his own roof and he was surprised at his thrill of boyish agitation he was not so old to be sure his glass gave him little more than the five and thirty years to which his wife confessed but he had fancied himself already in the temperate zone. Yet here he was listening for her step with a tender sense of all it symbolized, with some old trail of verse about the garlanded nuptial doorposts floating through his enjoyment of the pleasant room and the good dinner just beyond it. They had been hastily recalled from their honeymoon by the illness of Lily Haskett, the child of Mrs. Waythorn's first marriage. The little girl, at Waythorn's desire, had been transferred to his house on the day of her mother's wedding, and the doctor, on their arrival, broke the news that she was ill with typhoid, but declared that all the symptoms were favorable. Lily could show twelve years of unblemished health, and the case promised to be a light one. The nurse spoke reassuringly, and after a moment of alarm, Mrs. Waythorn had adjusted herself to the situation. She was very fond of Lily. Her affection for the child had perhaps been her decisive charm in Waythorn's eyes. But she had the perfectly balanced nerves which her little girl had inherited, and no woman ever wasted less tissue in unproductive worry. Waythorn was therefore quite prepared to see her come in presently, a little late because of a last look at Lily, but as serene and well-appointed as if her good-night kiss had been laid on the brow of health. Her composure was restful to him, it acted as ballast to his somewhat unstable sensibilities. As he pictured her bending over the child's bed, he thought how soothing her presence must be in illness. Her very step would prognosticate recovery. His own life had been a gray one, from temperament rather than circumstance. He had been drawn to her by the unperturbed gaiety which kept her fresh and elastic at an age when most women's activities are growing either slack or febrile. He knew what was said about her, for popular as she was, there had always been a faint undercurrent of detraction. 
when she had appeared in New York, nine or ten years earlier, as the pretty Mrs. Haskett, whom Gus Varick had unearthed somewhere, was it in Pittsburgh or Utica? Society, while promptly accepting her, had reserved the right to cast a doubt on its own discrimination. Inquiry, however, established her undoubted connection with a socially reigning family and explained her recent divorce as the natural result of a runaway match at 17, and as nothing was known of Mr. Haskett, it was easy to believe the worst of him. Alice Haskett's remarriage with Gus Varick was a passport to the set whose recognition she coveted. For a few years, the Varicks were the most popular couple in town. Unfortunately, the alliance was brief and stormy, and this time, the husband had his champions. Still, even Varick's staunchest supporters admitted that he was not meant for matrimony, and Mrs. Varick's grievances were of a nature to bear the inspection of the New York courts. A New York divorce is in itself a diploma of virtue, and in the semi-widowhood of this second separation, Mrs. Varick took on an air of sanctity and was allowed to confide her wrongs to some of the most scrupulous ears in town. But when it was known that she was to marry Waythorn, there was a momentary reaction. Her best friends would have preferred to see her remain in the role of the injured wife, which was as becoming to her as crepe to a rosy complexion. True, a decent time had elapsed, and it was not even suggested that Waythorn had supplanted his predecessor. Still, people shook their heads over him, and one grudging friend, to whom he affirmed that he took the step with his eyes open, replied oracularly, Yes, and with your ears shut. Waythorn could afford to smile at these innuendos. In the Wall Street phrase, he had discounted them. He knew that society has not yet adapted itself to the consequences of divorce, and that till the adaptation takes place, every woman who uses the freedom the law accords her must be her own social justification. Waythorn had an amused confidence in his wife's ability to justify herself. His expectations were fulfilled, and before the wedding took place, Alice Varick's group had rallied openly to her support. She took it all imperturbably. She had a way of surmounting obstacles without seeming to be aware of them, and Waythorn looked back in wonder at the trivialities over which he had worn his nerves thin. He had the sense of having found refuge in a richer, warmer nature than his own, and his satisfaction, at the moment, was humorlessly summed up in the thought that his wife, when she had done all she could for Lily, would not be ashamed to come down and enjoy a good dinner. The anticipation of such enjoyment was not, however, the sentiment expressed by Mrs. Waythorn's charming face when she presently joined him. Though she had put on her most engaging tea gown, she had neglected to assume the smile that went with it, and Waythorn thought that he had never seen her look so nearly worried. What is it? he asked. Is anything wrong with Lily? No, I've just been in and she's still sleeping, Mrs. Waythorn hesitated. But something tiresome has happened. He had taken her two hands and now perceived that he was crushing a paper between them. This letter? Yes. Mr. Haskett has written. I mean, his lawyer has written. Waythorn felt himself flush uncomfortably. He dropped his wife's hands. What about? About seeing Lily? You know the courts. Yes, yes, he interrupted nervously. Nothing was known about Haskett in New York. 
He was vaguely supposed to have remained in the outer darkness from which his wife had been rescued, and Waythorn was one of the few who were aware that he had given up his business in Utica and followed her to New York in order to be near his little girl. In the days of his wooing, Waythorn had often met Lily on the doorstep, rosy and smiling, on her way to see her papa. "'I am so sorry,' Mrs. Waythorn murmured. He roused himself. "'What does he want?' "'He wants to see her. You know she goes to him once a week.' "'Well, he doesn't expect her to go to him now, does he?' "'No. He has heard of her illness, but he expects to come here.' "'Here?' Mrs. Waythorn reddened under his gaze. They looked away from each other. "'I'm afraid he has the right. You'll see.' She made a proffer of the letter. Waythorn moved away with a gesture of refusal. He stood staring about the softly lighted room, which a moment before had seemed so full of bridal intimacy. "'I'm so sorry,' she repeated. "'If Lily could have been moved, that's out of the question,' he returned impatiently. "'I suppose so.' Her lip was beginning to tremble, and he felt himself a brute. "'He must come, of course,' he said. "'When is his day?' "'I'm afraid tomorrow.' "'Very well. Send a note in the morning.' The butler entered to announce dinner. Waythorn turned to his wife. "'Come, you must be tired. "'It's beastly, but try to forget about it,' he said, drawing her hand through his arm. "'You're so good, dear. I'll try,' she whispered back. Her face cleared at once. And as she looked at him across the flowers, between the rosy candle shades, he saw her lips waver back into a smile. "'How pretty everything is,' she sighed luxuriously. He turned to the butler. "'The champagne at once, please. Mrs. Waythorn is tired.' In a moment or two their eyes met above the sparkling glasses. Her own were quite clear and untroubled. He saw that she had obeyed his injunction and forgotten." Waythorn moved away with a gesture of refusal. Chapter 2 Waythorn, the next morning, went downtown earlier than usual. Haskett was not likely to come till the afternoon, but the instinct of flight drove him forth. He meant to stay away all day. He had thoughts of dining at his club. As his door closed behind him, he reflected that before he opened it again, it would have admitted another man who had as much right to enter it as himself and the thought filled him with a physical repugnance. He caught the elevated at the employee's hour and found himself crushed between two layers of pendulous humanity. At 8th Street, the man facing him wriggled out, and another took his place. Waythorn glanced up and saw that it was Gus Varick. The men were so close together that it was impossible to ignore the smile of recognition on Varick's handsome, overblown face. And after all, why not? They had always been on good terms, and Varick had been divorced before Waythorn's attention to his wife began. The two exchanged a word on the perennial grievance of the congested trains, and when a seat at their side was miraculously left empty, the instinct of self-preservation made Waythorn slip into it after Varick. The latter drew the stout man's breath of relief. "'Lord, I was beginning to feel like a press flower!' He leaned back, looking unconcernedly at Waythorn. "'Sorry to hear that Sellers is knocked out again.' "'Sellers?' echoed Waythorn, starting at his partner's name. Varick looked surprised. 
You didn't know he was laid up with the gout? No, I've been away. I only got back last night. Waythorn felt himself reddening in anticipation of the other's smile. Ah, yes, <laughs> to be sure. And Sellers' attack came on two days ago. I'm afraid he's pretty bad. Very awkward for me, as it happens, because he was just putting through a rather important thing for me. Ah, Waythorn wondered vaguely since when Varric had been dealing in important things. Hitherto he had dabbled only in the shallow pools of speculation with which Waythorn's office did not usually concern itself. It occurred to him that Varric might be talking at random to relieve the strain of their propinquity. That strain was becoming momentarily more apparent to Waythorn, and when, at Cortland Street, he caught sight of an acquaintance and had a sudden vision of the picture he and Varric must present to an initiated eye, he jumped up with a muttered excuse. "'I hope you'll find Sellers better,' said Varric civilly. And he stammered back, "'If I can be of any use to you,' and let the departing crowd sweep him off the platform. At his office he heard that Sellers was in fact ill with the gout, and would probably not be able to leave the house for some weeks. "'I'm sorry it should have happened so, Mr. Waythorn,' the senior clerk said with affable significance. Mr. Sellers is very much upset at the idea of giving you such a lot of extra work just now. Oh, that's no matter, said Waythorn hastily. He secretly welcomed the pressure of additional business and was glad to think that when the day's work was over, he would have to call at his partners on the way home. He was late for luncheon and turned in at the nearest restaurant instead of going to his club. The place was full and the waiter hurried him to the back of the room to capture the only vacant table. In the cloud of cigar smoke, Waythorn did not at once distinguish his neighbors, but presently, looking about him, he saw Varric seated a few feet off. This time, luckily, they were too far apart for conversation, and Varric, who faced another way, had probably not even seen him. But there was an irony in their renewed nearness. Varric was said to be fond of good living, and as Waythorn sat dispatching his hurried luncheon, he looked across half-enviously at the other's degutation of his meal. When Waythorn first saw him, he had been helping himself with critical deliberation to a bit of camembert at the ideal point of liquefaction. And now, the cheese removed, he was just pouring his café doble from its little two-storied earthen pot. He poured slowly, his ruddy profile bent above the task and one beringed white hand steadying the lid of the coffee pot. Then he stretched his other hand to the decanter of cognac at his elbow, filled a liqueur glass, took a tentative sip, and poured the brandy into his coffee cup. Waythorn watched him with a kind of fascination. What was he thinking of? Only the flavor of the coffee and the liqueur? Had the morning's meeting left no more trace in his thoughts than on his face? Had his wife so completely passed out of his life that even this odd encounter with her present husband within a week after her remarriage was no more than an incident in his day? As Waythorn mused, another idea struck him. Had Haskett ever met Varric, as Varric and he had just met? The recollection of Haskett perturbed him, and he rose and left the restaurant, taking a circuitous way out to escape the placid irony of Varric's nod. It was after seven when Waythorn reached home. He thought the footman who opened the door looked at him oddly. "'How is Miss Lily?' he asked in haste. 
Doing very well, sir. A gentleman. Tell Barlow to put off dinner for half an hour. Waythorn cut him off, hurrying upstairs. He went straight to his room and dressed without seeing his wife. When he reached the drawing room, she was there, fresh and radiant. Lily's day had been good. The doctor was not coming back that evening. At dinner, Waythorn told her of Seller's illness and of the resulting complications. She listened sympathetically, adjuring him not to let himself be overworked, and asking vague, feminine questions about the routine of the office. Then she gave him the chronicle of Lily's day, quoted the nurse and the doctor, and told him who had called to inquire. He had never seen her more serene and unruffled. It struck him, with a curious pang, that she was very happy in being with him, so happy that she found a childish pleasure in rehearsing the trivial incidents of her day. After dinner they went to the library, and the servant put the coffee and liqueurs on a low table before her and left the room. She looked singularly soft and girlish in her rosy pale dress against the dark leather of one of his bachelor armchairs. A day earlier the contrast would have charmed him. He turned away now, choosing a cigar with affected deliberation. Did Haskett come? he asked with his back to her. Oh, yes, he came. You didn't see him, of course. She hesitated a moment. I let the nurse see him. That was all. There was nothing more to ask. He swung round toward her, applying a match to his cigar. Well, the thing was over for a week, at any rate. He would not try to think of it. She looked up at him, a trifle rosier than usual, with a smile in her eyes. Ready for your coffee, dear? He leaned against the mantelpiece, watching her as she lifted the coffee pot. The lamplight struck a gleam from her bracelets and tipped her soft hair with brightness. How light and slender she was, and how each gesture flowed into the next. She seemed a creature all compact of harmonies. As the thought of Haskett receded, Waythorn felt himself yielding again to the joy of possessorship. They were his, those white hands with their flitting motions. His, the light haze of hair, the lips and eyes. She set down the coffee pot and, reaching for the decanter of cognac, measured off a liqueur glass and poured it into his cup. Waythorn uttered a sudden exclamation. What is the matter? she said, startled. Nothing. Only I don't take cognac in my coffee. Oh, how stupid of me, she cried. Their eyes met, and she blushed a sudden, agonized red. Chapter 3 Ten days later, Mr. Sellers, still housebound, asked Waythorn to call on his way downtown. The senior partner, with his swaddled foot propped up by the fire, greeted his associate with an air of embarrassment. "'I'm sorry, dear fellow. I've got to ask you to do an awkward thing for me.' Waythorn waited and the other went on after a pause apparently given to the arrangement of his phrases. The fact is, when I was knocked out, I had just gone into a rather complicated piece of business for Gus Verrick. Well, said Waythorn with an attempt to put him at his ease. Well, it's this way. Verrick came to me the day before my attack. He had evidently had an inside tip from somebody and had made about a hundred thousand. He came to me for advice, and I suggested his going in with Vanderlyn. Oh, the deuce! Waythorn exclaimed. He saw in a flash what had happened. The investment was an alluring one, but required negotiation. He listened intently while Sellers put the case before him, and, the statement ended, 
he said. Do they got to see Varric? I'm afraid I can't as yet. The doctor is obdurate, and this thing can't wait. I hate to ask you, but no one else in the office knows the ins and outs of it. Waythorn stood silent. He did not care a farthing for the success of Varric's venture, but the honor of the office was to be considered, and he could hardly refuse to oblige his partner. Very well, he said. I'll do it. That afternoon, apprised by telephone, Varric called at the office. Waythorn, waiting in his private room, wondered what the others thought of it. The newspapers, at the time of Mrs. Waythorn's marriage, had acquainted their readers with every detail of her previous matrimonial ventures, and Waythorn could fancy the clerk smiling behind Varric's back as he was ushered in. Varric bore himself admirably. He was easy without being undignified, and Waythorn was conscious of cutting a much less impressive figure. Varric had no head for business, and the talk prolonged itself for nearly an hour while Waythorn set forth with scrupulous precision the details of the proposed transaction. "'I'm awfully obliged to you,' Varric said as he rose. "'The fact is I'm not used to having much money to look after, and I don't want to make an ass of myself.' He smiled, and Waythorn could not help noticing that there was something pleasant about his smile. It feels uncommonly queer to have enough cash to pay one's bills. I'd have sold my soul for it a few years ago. Waythorn winced at the illusion. He had heard it rumored that a lack of funds had been one of the determining causes of the Varick separation, but it did not occur to him that Varick's words were intentional. It seemed more likely that the desire to keep clear of embarrassing topics had fatally drawn him into one. Waythorn did not wish to be outdone in civility. We'll do the best we can for you, he said. I think this is a good thing you're in. Oh, I'm sure it's immense. It's awfully good of you, Varric broke off embarrassed. I suppose the thing's settled for now, but if... If anything happens before Sellers is about, I'll see you again, said Waythorn quietly. He was glad in the end to appear the more self-possessed of the two. Of course, Lily's illness ran smooth, and as the days passed, Waythorn grew used to the idea of Haskett's weekly visits. The first time the day came round, he stayed out late and questioned his wife as to the visit on his return. She replied at once that Haskett had merely seen the nurse downstairs, as the doctor did not wish anyone in the child's sick room till after the crisis. The following week, Waythorn was again conscious of the recurrence of the day, but had forgotten it by the time he came home to dinner. The crisis of the disease came a few days later, with a rapid decline of fever, and the little girl was pronounced out of danger. In the rejoicing which ensued, the thought of Haskett passed out of Waythorn's mind, and one afternoon, letting himself into the house with a latchkey, he went straight to his library without noticing a shabby hat and umbrella in the hall. In the library, he found a small, effaced-looking man with a thinnish gray beard sitting on the edge of a chair. The stranger might have been a piano tuner, are one of those mysteriously efficient persons who are summoned in emergencies to adjust some detail of the domestic machinery. He blinked at Waythorn through a pair of gold-rimmed spectacles and said mildly, Mr. Waythorn, I presume. I am Lily's father. Waythorn flushed. Oh, he stammered uncomfortably. He broke off, disliking to appear rude. Inwardly, he was trying to adjust the actual Haskett to the image of him projected by his wife's reminiscences. Waythorn had been allowed to infer that Alice's first husband was a brute. 
I am sorry to intrude, said Haskett with his over-the-counter politeness. Don't mention it, returned Waythorn, collecting himself. I suppose the nurse has been told? I presume so. I can wait, said Haskett. He had a resigned way of speaking, as though life had worn down his natural powers of resistance. Waythorn stood on the threshold, nervously pulling off his gloves. I'm sorry you've been detained. I will send for the nurse, he said, and as he opened the door, he added with an effort, I'm glad we can give you a good report of Lily. He winced as the we slipped out, but Haskett seemed not to notice it. Thank you, Mr. Waythorn. It's been an anxious time for me. Ah, well, that's past. Soon she'll be able to go to you. Waythorn nodded and passed out. In his own room, he flung himself down with a groan. He hated the womanish sensibility which made him suffer so acutely from the grotesque chances of life. He had known when he married that his wife's former husbands were both living and that amid the multiplied contacts of modified existence, there were a thousand chances to one that he would run against one or the other. Yet he found himself as much disturbed by his brief encounter with Haskett as though the law had not obligingly removed all difficulties in the way of their meeting. Waythorn sprang up and began to pace the room nervously. He had not suffered half so much from his two meetings with Varick. It was Haskett's presence in his own house that made the situation so intolerable. He stood still, hearing steps in the passage. This way, please, he heard the nurse say. Haskett was being taken upstairs then. Not a corner of the house but was open to him. Waythorn dropped into another chair, staring vaguely ahead of him. On his dressing table stood a photograph of Alice, taken when he had first known her. She was Alice Varick then. How fine and exquisite he had thought her. Those were Varick's pearls about her neck. At Waythorn's insistence, they had been returned before her marriage. Had Haskett ever given her any trinkets, and what had become of them? Waythorn wondered. He realized suddenly that he knew very little of Haskett's past or present situation, but from the man's appearance and manner of speech, he could reconstruct with curious precision the surroundings of Alice's first marriage. And it startled him to think that she had, in the background of her life, a phase of existence so different from anything with which he had connected her. Varick, whatever his faults, was a gentleman, in the conventional, traditional sense of the term the sense which at that moment seemed oddly enough to have most meaning to Waythorn. He and Varick had the same social habits, spoke the same language, understood the same illusions. But this other man? It was grotesquely uppermost in Waythorn's mind that Haskett had worn a made-up tie attached with elastic. Why should that ridiculous detail symbolize the whole man? Waythorn was exasperated by his own paltriness. But the fact of the tie expanded, forced itself upon him, became as if it were the key to Alice's past. He could see her as Mrs. Haskett, sitting in the front parlor, furnished in plush, with a pianola and a copy of Ben-Hur on the center table. He could see her going to the theater with Haskett, or perhaps even to a church sociable. She in a picture hat, and Haskett in a black frock coat, a little creased, with the made-up tie on an elastic. On the way home, they would stop and look at the illuminated shop windows lingering over the photographs of New York actresses. On Sunday afternoons, Haskett would take her for a walk, pushing Lily ahead of them in a white enameled perambulator, and Waythorn had a vision of the people they would stop and talk to, 
He could fancy how pretty Alice must have looked in a dress adroitly constructed from the hints of a New York fashion paper. How she must have looked to the other women, chafing at her life and secretly feeling that she belonged in a bigger place. For the moment, his foremost thought was one of wonder at the way in which she had shed the phase of existence which her marriage with Haskett implied. It was as if her whole aspect, every gesture, every inflection, every illusion, were a studied negation of that period of her life. If she had denied being married to Haskett, she could hardly have stood more convicted of duplicity than in this obliteration of the self which had been his wife. Waythorn started up, checking himself in the analysis of her motives. What right had he to create a fantastic effigy of her and then pass judgment on it? She had spoken vaguely of her first marriage as unhappy, had hinted with becoming reticence that Haskett had wrought havoc among her young illusions. It was a pity for Waythorn's peace of mind that Haskett's very inoffensiveness shed a new light on the nature of those illusions. A man would rather think that his wife has been brutalized by her first husband than that the process has been reversed. Why, how do you do? she said with a distinct note of pleasure. Chapter 4 Mr. Waythorn, I don't like that French governess of Lily's. Haskett, subdued and apologetic, stood before Waythorn in the library, revolving his shabby hat in his hand. Waythorn, surprised in his armchair over the evening paper, stared back perplexedly at his visitor. "'You'll excuse my asking to see you,' Haskett continued. "'But this is my last visit, and I thought if I could have a word with you it would be a better way than writing to Mrs. Waythorn's lawyer.' Waythorn rose uneasily. He did not like the French governess either, but that was irrelevant. "'I'm not so sure of that,' he returned stiffly. But since you wish it, I will give you a message to my wife. He always hesitated over the possessive pronoun in addressing Haskett. The latter sighed. I don't know as that will help much. She didn't like it when I spoke to her. Waythorn turned red. When did you see her? Not since the first day I came to see Lily, right after she was taken sick. I remarked to her that I didn't like the governess. Waythorn made no answer. He remembered distinctly that after the first visit, he had asked his wife if she had seen Haskett. She had lied to him then, but she had respected his wishes since, and the incident cast a curious light on her character. He was sure she would not have seen Haskett that first day if she had divined that Waythorn would object, and the fact that she did not divine it was almost as disagreeable to the latter as the discovery that she had lied to him. "'I don't like the woman.' Haskett was repeating with mild persistency. "'She ain't straight, Mr. Waythorn. She'll teach the child to be underhand. I've noticed a change in Lily. She's too anxious to please, and she don't always tell the truth. She used to be the straightest child, Mr. Waythorn,' he broke off, his voice a little thick. "'Not but I want her to have a stylish education,' he ended. Waythorn was touched. I'm sorry, Mr. Haskett, but frankly, I don't quite see what I can do. Haskett hesitated. Then he laid his hat on the table and advanced to the hearth rug on which Waythorn was standing. There was nothing aggressive in his manner, but he had the solemnity of a timid man resolved on a decisive measure. There's just one thing you can do, Mr. Waythorn, he said. 
you can remind Mrs. Waythorn that by decree of the courts I am entitled to have a voice in Lily's bringing up. He paused and went on more deprecatingly. I'm not the kind to talk about enforcing my rights, Mr. Waythorn. I don't know that I think a man is entitled to rights he hasn't known how to hold on to. But this business of the child is different. I've never let go there, and I never mean to. The scene left Waythorn deeply shaken. Shamefacedly, in indirect ways, he had been finding out about Haskett, and all that he had learned was favorable. The little man, in order to be near his daughter, had sold out his share in a profitable business in Utica and accepted a modest clerkship in a New York manufacturing house. He boarded in a shabby street and had few acquaintances. His passion for Lily filled his life. Waythorn felt that this exploration of Haskett was like groping about with a dark lantern in his wife's past. But he saw now that there were recesses his lantern had not explored. He had never inquired into the exact circumstances of his wife's first matrimonial rupture. On the surface, all had been fair. It was she who obtained the divorce, and the court had given her the child. But Waythorn knew how many ambiguities such a verdict might cover. The mere fact that Haskett retained a right over his daughter implied an unsuspected compromise. Waythorn was an idealist. He always refused to recognize unpleasant contingencies until he found himself confronted with them, and then he saw them followed by a special train of consequences. His next days were thus haunted, and he determined to try and lay the ghosts by conjuring them up in his wife's presence. When he repeated Haskett's request, a flame of anger passed over her face, but she subdued it instantly and spoke with a slight quiver of outraged motherhood. It is very ungentlemanly of him, she said. The words grated on Waythorn. That is neither here nor there. It is a bare question of rights, she murmured. It's not as if he could ever be a help to Lily. Waythorn flushed. This was even less to his taste. The question is, he repeated, what authority has he over her? She looked downward, twisting herself a little in her seat. I am willing to see him. I thought you objected, she faltered. In a flash, he understood that she knew the extent of Haskett's claims. Perhaps it was not the first time she had resisted them. My objecting has nothing to do with it, he said coldly. If Haskett has a right to be consulted, you must consult him. She burst into tears, and he saw that she expected him to regard her as a victim. Haskett did not abuse his rights. Waythorn felt miserably sure that he would not. But the governess was dismissed, and from time to time the little man demanded an interview with Alice. After the first outburst, she accepted the situation with her usual adaptability. Haskett had once reminded Waythorn of the piano tuner, and Mrs. Waythorn, after a month or two, appeared to class him with that domestic familiar. Waythorn could not but respect the father's tenacity. At first, he had tried to cultivate the suspicion that Haskett might be up to something, that he had an object in securing a foothold in the house. But in his heart, Waythorn was sure of Haskett's single-mindedness. He even guessed in the latter a mild contempt for such advantages as his relation with the Waythorns might offer. Haskett's sincerity of purpose made him invulnerable, and his successor had to accept him as a lien on the property. 
Mr. Sellers was sent to Europe to recover from his gout, and Varick's affairs hung on Waythorn's hands. The negotiations were prolonged and complicated. They necessitated frequent conferences between the two men, and the interests of the firms forbade Waythorn suggesting that his client should transfer his business to another office. Varick appeared well in the transaction. In moments of relaxation, his coarse streak appeared, and Waythorn dreaded his geniality, but in the office, he was concise and clear-headed with a flattering deference to Waythorn's judgment. Their business relations being so affably established, it would have been absurd for the two men to ignore each other in society. The first time they met in a drawing room, Varick took up their intercourse in the same easy key, and his hostess's grateful glance obliged Waythorn to respond to it. After that, they ran across each other frequently, and one evening at a ball, Waythorn, wandering through the remoter rooms, came upon Varick seated beside his wife. She colored a little and faltered in what she was saying, but Varick nodded to Waythorn without rising, and the latter strolled on. In the carriage, on the way home, he broke out nervously. I didn't know you spoke to Varick. Her voice trembled a little. It's the first time. He happened to be standing near me. I didn't know what to do. It's so awkward meeting everywhere, and he said you had been very kind about some business. That's different, said Waythorn. She paused for a moment. I'll do just as you wish, she returned pliantly. I thought it would be less awkward to speak to him when we meet. Her pliancy was beginning to sicken him. Had she really no will of her own? No theory about her relation to these men? She had accepted Haskett. Did she mean to accept Varick? It was less awkward, as she had said, and her instinct was to evade difficulties or circumvent them. With sudden vividness, Waythorn saw how the instinct had developed. She was as easy as an old shoe, a shoe that too many feet had worn. Her elasticity was the result of tension in too many different directions. Alice Haskett, Alice Varick, Alice Waythorn. She had been each in turn and had left hanging to each name a little of her privacy, a little of her personality, a little of the inmost self where the unknown God abides. Yes, it's better to speak to Varick, said Waythorn wearily. Chapter 5 The Winter Wore On and society took advantage of the Waythorn's acceptance of Varick. Harassed hostesses were grateful to them for bridging over a social difficulty, and Mrs. Waythorn was held up as a miracle of good taste. Some experimental spirits could not resist the diversion of throwing Varick and his former wife together, and there were those who thought he found a zest in the propinquity. But Mrs. Waythorn's conduct remained irreproachable. She neither avoided Varick, nor sought him out. Even Waythorn could not but admit that she had discovered the solution of the newest social problem. He had married her without giving much thought to that problem. He had fancied that a woman can shed her past like a man, but now he saw that Alice was bound to hers by the circumstances which forced her into continued relation with it, and by the traces it had left on her nature. With grim irony, Waythorn compared himself to a member of a syndicate. He held so many shares in his wife's personality, and his predecessors were his partners in the business. If there had been any element of passion in the transaction, he would have felt less deteriorated by it. 
The fact that Alice took her change of husbands like a change of the weather reduced the situation to mediocrity. He could have forgiven her for blunders, for excesses, for resisting Hackett, for yielding to Varick, for anything but her acquiescence and her tact. She reminded him of a juggler tossing knives, but the knives were blunt and she knew they would never cut her. And then gradually, habit formed a protecting surface for his sensibilities. If he paid for each day's comfort with the small change of his illusions, he grew daily to value the comfort more and set less store upon the coin. He had drifted into a dulling propinquity with Haskett and Varick, and he took refuge in the cheap revenge of satirizing the situation. He even began to reckon up the advantages which accrued from it, to ask himself if it were not better to own a third of a wife who knew how to make a man happy than a whole one who had lacked opportunity to acquire the art. For it was an art, and made up, like all others, of concessions, eliminations, and embellishments, of lights judiciously thrown and shadows skillfully softened. His wife knew exactly how to manage the lights, and he knew exactly to what training she owed her skill. He even tried to trace the source of his obligations, to discriminate between the influences which had combined to produce his domestic happiness. He perceived that Haskett's commonness had made Alice worship good breeding, while Varick's liberal construction of the marriage bond had taught her to value the conjugal virtues, so that he was directly indebted to his predecessors for the devotion which made his life easy, if not inspiring. From this phase he passed into that of complete acceptance. He ceased to satirize himself because time dulled the irony of the situation, and the joke lost its humor with its sting. Even the sight of Haskett's hat on the hall table had ceased to touch the springs of epigram. The hat was often seen there now, for it had been decided that it was better for Lily's father to visit her than for the little girl to go to his boarding house. Waythorn, having acquiesced in this arrangement, had been surprised to find how little difference it made. Haskett was never obtrusive, and the few visitors who met him on the stairs were unaware of his identity. Waythorn did not know how often he saw Alice, but with himself Haskett was seldom in contact. One afternoon, however, he learned on entering that Lily's father was waiting to see him. In the library, he found Haskett occupying a chair in his usual provisional way. Waythorn always felt grateful to him for not leaning back. "'I hope you'll excuse me, Mr. Waythorn,' he said, rising. "'I wanted to see Mrs. Waythorn about Lily, and your man asked me to wait here till she came in.' "'Of course,' said Waythorn, remembering that a sudden leak had that morning given over the drawing-room to the plumbers. He opened his cigar-case and held it out to his visitor, and Haskett's acceptance seemed to mark a fresh stage in their intercourse. The spring evening was chilly, and Waythorn invited his guest to draw up his chair to the fire. He meant to find an excuse to leave Haskett in a moment, but he was tired and cold, and, after all, the little man no longer jarred on him. The two were enclosed in the intimacy of their blended cigar smoke when the door opened and Varick walked into the room. Waythorn rose abruptly. It was the first time that Varick had come to the house, and the surprise of seeing him, combined with the singular inopportuneness of his arrival, gave a new edge to Waythorn's blunted sensibilities. He stared at his visitor without speaking. Varick seemed too preoccupied to notice his host's embarrassment. "'My dear fellow!' 
he exclaimed in his most expansive tone. I must apologize for tumbling in on you this way, but I was too late to catch you downtown, so I thought... He stopped short, catching sight of Haskett and his sanguine color deepened to a flush which spread vividly under his scant blonde hair. But in a moment he recovered himself and nodded slightly. Haskett returned the bow in silence, and Waythorn was still groping for speech when the footman came in carrying a tea table. The intrusion offered a welcome vent to Waythorn's nerves. "'What the deuce are you bringing this here for?' he said sharply. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but the plumbers are still in the drawing-room, and Mrs. Waythorn said she would have her tea in the library.' The footman's perfectly respectful tone implied a reflection on Waythorn's reasonableness. "'Oh, very well,' said the latter resignedly, and the footman proceeded to open the folding tea-table and set out its complicated appointments. While this interminable process continued, the three men stood motionless, watching it with a fascinated stare, till Waythorn, to break the silence, said to Varick, "'Won't you have a cigar?' He held out the case he had just tendered to Haskett, and Varick helped himself with a smile. Waythorn looked about for a match, and, finding none, proffered a light from his own cigar. Haskett, in the background, held his ground mildly, examining his cigar tip now and then, and stepping forward at the right moment to knock its ashes into the fire. The footman at last withdrew, and Varick immediately began. "'If I could say half a word to you about this business?' "'Certainly,' stammered Waythorn. "'In the dining-room.' But as he placed his hand on the door, it opened from without, and his wife appeared on the threshold. She came in fresh and smiling, in her street dress and hat, shedding a fragrance from the boa which she loosened in advancing. "'Shall we have tea in here, dear?' she began, and then she caught sight of Varick. Her smile deepened, veiling a slight tremor of surprise. "'Why, how do you do?' she said with a distinct note of pleasure. As she shook hands with Varick, she saw Haskett standing behind them. Her smile faded for a moment, but she recalled it quickly with a scarcely perceptible side-glance at Waythorn. "'How do you do, Mr. Haskett?' she said, and shook hands with him a shade less cordially. The three men stood awkwardly before her till Varick, always the most self-possessed, dashed into an explanatory phrase. "'We uh, had to see Waythorn for a moment on business,' he stammered brick-red from chin to nape. Haskett stepped forward with his air of mild obstinacy. "'I'm sorry to intrude, but you appointed five o'clock.' He directed his resigned glance to the timepiece on the mantel. She swept aside their embarrassment with a charming gesture of hospitality. "'I'm so sorry. I'm always late. But the afternoon was so lovely.' She stood, drawing her gloves off, propitiatory and graceful, diffusing about her a sense of ease and familiarity in which the situation lost its grotesqueness. "'But before talking business,' she added brightly, I'm sure everyone wants a cup of tea. She dropped into her low chair by the tea table, and the two visitors, as if drawn by her smile, advanced to receive the cup she held out. She glanced about for Waythorn, and he took the third cup with a laugh. Best known for her novels, Edith Wharton was a prolific writer of short stories. Growing up among New York's upper class, she created realistic portrayals of America's pseudo-aristocracy during the Gilded Age. 
1921, she became the first woman to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Literature for her book, The Age of Innocence. I hope you enjoyed today's story, and I hope you keep listening. And if you would, please, tell your friends, your relatives, even people you don't like all that much, about lit reading and ask them to join us for some great stories. And I'd really appreciate it if you'd write a review at Apple Podcasts. Speaking of great reviews, I want to send a message to the person with a screen name, Baham Mayhem, on Apple Podcasts. You wrote a beautiful review, but you gave it three stars. Was that intentional, or did you hit the wrong star? Either way, thanks for the kind words, and thank you for all your reviews. And thanks for listening to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald.